I invite you to be turning to Song of Songs, chapter 5. And as you turn there, I want to tell you a story about a board game that I loved playing with my brother Gene growing up. However, I called him Gene, as did the rest of his family, because his middle name is Eugene. But to everyone else, he wanted to go by his first name, Aaron. So, don't tell him I told you a story referring to him as Gene. Now, I feel better about that. Now, um, the board game was called Stratego. And what you had were several game pieces and then a map. The map had quadrants like a chessboard, small squares, but it was a map. And the game was basically capture the flag. The game pieces were numbered one through nine. There was also a spy and also a bombs and, and the flag to capture. The lower the number, <clears throat> the more powerful the game piece. So you would set this map up, and I want to say that each player had 40 pieces each, or 30 pieces actually, and those 30 pieces would be staring back at you, but blind to the other people other person, because it was only a, a two-player game. So you would strategize how you would set the map up, and the object was to capture their flag before they captured your flag. So I usually put the flag uh, closest to me, surrounded by bombs or powerful tokens, so low-numbered tokens. Now, the numbers corresponded with ranks in an army, you know, a general, commander, captain, and all the way to scouts and grunts or whatever you want to call them. Sometimes we would put a number two or three on the front of our army, hoping that they were dumb and put a bunch of nines and eights and sevens, you know, at the top of their army so we can just start taking out their army. And then we would go to war. And it was one turn at a time. I don't know if any of us won more, uh, more than the other. Probably like most games, we had good days and bad days. Now, we'll come back to this. In our story, on our study through Song of Songs, some of you may remember we covered a lover tiff, lover's tiff last week. Keeping in with the general romantic married love uh, plot throughout the book, the tiff we covered was basically the husband arrived home really late. He's wet from the weather. And he finds the bride already in bed, all ready to sleep. And he wanted to do more, and then she rejected him. But then as she thought about it, she decided she wanted him too. But he already left rejected. That's kind of where we're at in the story. So now I invite you to stand in honor of reading and hearing the word of God. For our purposes today, we're going to have a verse we covered last week. Followed the first verse of our study today. But let's stand for the reading of these two verses. Songs chapter 5 verses 8 and 9. So the bride says, young woman of Jerusalem, I charge you, if you find my love, tell him that I am lovesick. And the young women or the chorus respond, what makes the one you love better than another, most beautiful of women? What makes him better than another that you would give us this charge? Let's pray. Father, as we um, talk about 
sometimes the war that romances, battlegrounds, fights. We, whether we be the husband or the wife, or whether we be just a neighbor, we want to be like Jesus to our spouse, to our friends, to our family. Fathers, for some of us, maybe for all of us, this might be a hard message. That's why we pray for soft hearts. Because we want to change. There should be nothing in us, if we are truly yours, to desire to be anything other than who Jesus would be to those we love. Help us as we study your word to be like Jesus. Father, I don't want not I do not want to rely on what I have studied to solely be what I preach, but I want to rely solely on your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, I pray that your voice would be heard and not mine. We love you, we thank you, we thank you again for Jesus and his death and his resurrection and for taking away our sins. We ask and pray all these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. I promise you're not going to learn more about Stratego than the Bible today. But in the game of Stratego, suppose that I advanced, I don't know, a number seven against my brother. And I invaded one of his quadrants, one of his squares, and I would ask him, what number do you have? And if he said he had a number eight or higher, he would put his token away because I won the battle with the lower number. Now, if he said if he had a six or lower, he would win, and I would put my token away because I had a seven. Well, let's just say if he had a seven and I had a seven, we would both put our tokens away. I feel like the bride and groom came on the attack last week in the study towards each other with the same proverbial number. Nobody's winning. Everyone's losing. Furthermore, the lover's tiff last week wasn't the only thing, really. It's actually been building. The bride's been concerned, distracted, preoccupied. She is a humble, modest gal. She's left working in the vineyard, and she fell head over heels for this groom. And this groom happens to be King Solomon. And perhaps a very visual point happened last week in our studies, the latter half of chapter 3. It's very obvious in this book that the bride is the main character. She talked first, she talks most. I know, don't all brides talk most in the marriage? But the author made this literary decision to say that when it came to the wedding celebration, Solomon was the main character. Solomon in all of his splendor was front and center not the main character, not the bride. It was a big wedding, a big procession. It was surrounded by military. The, the carriage carrying them was done luxuriously, and it was opulent, and the, their bridal chamber was adorned. No expense was spared. And then the chorus said at the end of the wedding, Go out, young woman of Zion, and, and gaze at King Solomon wearing his, the crown his mother placed on him on the day of his wedding, the day of his heart's rejoicing. He is front and center. And the idea laced throughout this book is that the bride feels her old life slipping away. 
She feels the quietness of country life unattainable. This is her new life. She said she was a lily of the valley. She was unnoticeable. She was common. And suddenly she is with the king of her nation. She's had some dreams. Chapter 3 told us of a dream waking up and he's not there. Because he's out doing king stuff, taking care of affairs of state. Another grim reality of married life to the king. Chapter 5 tells us of another dream where he shows up late because he's been busy and now he wants his wife when he gets home. And that's where the lover's tiff took place. And married life is like this, right? Perhaps there is an undercurrent, a brewing problem. And like most problems, you catch symptoms from time to time. She's angry that day, but it's not because you did the dishes wrong or didn't do the dishes at all. And although that's what she nagged you for, he's distant that day, but it's not because you hadn't taken your shower for the day. (laughs) There's an underlying problem that's been festering and it rears its head in so many ways. You know, another marriage where the bride seems to be the main character until we are all held captive at the groom at the wedding. Jesus on the cross. See, the Gospel is likened in the Bible as a groom, Jesus, and the bride, the church. But who is the focus, the sole focus at the proverbial marriage? Jesus. The disciples left Jesus and fled. And and though this this Word tells us He's dying for our sins... He's doing it for us. All we read about is He on the cross. We are to gaze upon King Jesus when He wore the crown of thorns the day of His suffering. And with John the Baptist, we confess that we must decrease and He must increase. We must put away our old life and adopt His new life. We must have our identity swallowed up in Jesus just as the bride finds her identity being swallowed up in the, in the groom. Again, he, he comes home, wants to make advances on her. She rejects him. He's deflated. He goes away. She decides she does want him, but he's gone away. She's out searching for him. So she enlists the help of her young woman. They're, they're kind of the chorus in the book. They, they fill in a literary narration. They keep the story going. And before they help her, They have a question for her. They say, What makes the one you love better than another, most beautiful of women? What makes him better than another that you would give us this charge? So here's the point. You've been worrying about this marriage, this leaving your old life, accepting the new life so much. One of the ways it has manifested itself is by rejecting him on the marriage bed. So why do you want to find him? What makes him better than another guy? One of the things in history that has led people to adopt what I would consider to be more literal, straightforward interpretation of the book is actually the diplomatic work of a consul from Germany to Syria in the 1840s to the 1860s. And I know all of you are like, I see where this is going. No, I don't. (laughs) He, of course, was a Christian. He was a German consul, and he was witness to many Arab customs, and among them were wedding customs. And in some places, 
he began to notice that the husband and bride would sing songs to each other that were actually a description of the personal perfections and beauty of the two. And that sounds much like Song of Solomon, doesn't it? <laughs> the bride and the groom throughout the book have been singing songs about each other. Only really up to this far, it seems like the groom has been doing most of the singing about the bride. But the chorus just asked the bride, why do you want to find him? What's so amazing about him? You've been concerned up to this far about your marriage anyways. And just like in old Disney movies, when you could anticipate or you would hear a certain line and you're like, oh boy, I think I feel a song coming on. <laughs> so the case is here. <laughs> the bride is about to, from head to toe, say a few things about Solomon. First she says, my love is fit and strong. And the CSB would put a footnote telling us that uh, more literally, the words could be radiant and ruddy. He's handsome and he's healthy. That's the point. Notable among 10,000, which I would say this one in a million type compliment is far better than what he said to her back in chapter one, which is like, compare you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Thanks. <laughs> now, she says something at first that really didn't strike me until the commentators started bringing a few things into perspective. She says, his head is purest gold. And I was like, does that mean like a good suntan? He's, he's got a huge crown? What's the point? Um, one of my commentators said that this phrase is only used one other time in the Bible, and it's in Nebuchadnezzar's statue in Daniel 2. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. As Daniel interprets it, he says, Your majesty, as you were watching, suddenly a colossal statue appeared, and that statue, tall and dazzling, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was terrifying. The head of the statue was pure gold. And furthermore, my commentary would, obvious, would say that it's obvious, outside of the Bible, lots of statues and idols were made of gold, or at least its head may have been. So what am I saying? The bride here and the rest of the song is certainly exalting and lifting up this man's appearance beyond all things. He is matchless. He's still a man. He's not divine. But in comparison to the rest of the world, he's a big deal in her mind. She continues, his hair is wavy and black as a raven. Now, besides the obviously physical simile, black hair on a raven and black hair on the guy, ravens are also known for their consistency and providing for their young even in the Bible, we have the story of Elijah being fed by ravens in 1 Kings 17. So it could be that the bride here, redeeming her thoughts of being married to this man, he's, she's saying, he provides for me. Never mind that he's a king, and of course he's provided for, but... <laughs> and if this also isn't already a given for you men, Paul says rather blatantly, says, but if anyone does not provide for his own family, especially for his own household... He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. <laughs> Sounds like there's no way around that. <laughs> if you're able, physically able, you need to provide for your own family. You need to get to that place and do so. Now I'm going to point you to your commentaries, your study guides that coincide with this series. I'm going to leave out a few verses. And there, there's a few more left on the table right when you come into the church if you don't have one. But I want to move our attention to verses 14 and 15. Here's what the bride says. 
His arms are rods of gold set with beryl. Well-known varieties of beryl would be emerald and aquamarine. His body is an ivory panel covered with lapis, lapis lazuli. Lazuli? Here we go. That. There you go. It's a blue stone. <laughs> a blue stone. Some people sometimes have confused it with sapphire. Sometimes they even called it sapphire. And his legs are alabaster pillars set on pedestals of, pole, pedestals of pure gold. Pillars. Pedestals. And in fact, the word used for leg is actually the same word used for leg or thigh to describe an animal being sacrificed at the temple. So this is more godlike language here. It certainly helps or supports the theory of interpretation that I brought up at the very beginning of this series, a book of where we see the groom, God or Jesus, and the bride, the church or God's chosen people. And then furthermore, she says, his presence is like Lebanon, as majestic as the cedars. Now, in Deuteronomy, Moses is giving some final words to the Israelites. And he's lamenting that he's never made it to the promised land. And he says in Deuteronomy 3.25, Please let me cross over and see the beautiful land on the other side of the Jordan, that good hill country, and Lebanon. Lebanon could have been like the way we kind of flippantly yet symbolically use the word heaven or paradise. The groom's very presence is like paradise to the bride. And then the cedars of Lebanon is the most, Lebanon's richest and most beautiful resource. It's costly. So as I said, all of this lends itself to the theory of interpretation that the bride was like the people of God and the groom was God. But also as I studied this, some wedding vows came to my mind. You ever heard that phrase? With my body, I the worship. We've made mention of this passage a few times in our series. Paul says in Ephesians 5, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are submit to husbands and everything. Now I'm going to say this right now. Sorry if I should have said it a few minutes ago. I'm not advocating, nor do I believe that wives should worship, exalt, or give their husbands the same sort of worship they give to God. Uh, wives, don't pray to your husbands, don't call him Lord, anything like that. That really would really go to his head, and he's already got a big enough head. Anyways, the Bible obviously makes room for similarities. And also, don't worry, wives, I'll get after your husbands in a bit. Paul spends more time admonishing husbands than he does wives. But... As for the bride here, she is answering just what kind of man he is. That's what the chorus asked her. I think it's safe to say that he's not lost any brownie points in her eyes. <laughs> Verse 16. His mouth is sweetness. That could refer to the talk that comes out of his mouth. He's going to speak some sweetness to her in a bit. Could refer to his kisses. It likely refers to both. He is absolutely desirable. This is my love. And this is my friend, young woman of Jerusalem. I love those two separated, don't you? This is my love. Passionate, marriage, romantic, sexual. This is my friend. Quality time, humoring one another, sharing aspirations and dreams, hanging out. 
I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that a good marriage starts with a good friend. If you've never thought about your spouse that way, or if you would rather hang out with somebody else than your spouse, and you reserve your spouse for just certain categories, repent and make your spouse your best friend. I can honestly say, and I have honestly said for a long time, that Christy is my best friend. I'm kind of a natural loner. I try to make calls, make appointments. I do get together with time to time with other friends. Met my mentor in McCall a while ago. Trying to have the guys over for a night of card games or a movie. It hasn't happened yet. <laughs> but, uh, and I'll meet some guys for coffees or meals every now and then. But I'm not ashamed to say that the top of my friend list is Christy. I like playing cards with her. And though I hate the reasons we've been having to go to Lewiston and Spokane by ourselves lately, I do like driving in the car with her. <laughs> I love together time with her. I love taking her out to dinner. She's my best friend. Some marriages I've seen settle in deep into their ruts and their problems, and then their friendship gets kind of forgotten to where it's just all about being nice to the other spouse and just saying, sure, you can take the night and go do whatever with your buddies. I'll hold down the fort. And while it is nice that friends of the same sex get together and that's commendable, what do you like doing together with your spouse? Watch a movie together, play cards together, go camping together, take a trip down for a meal and a walk or a movie and do some experience together. What makes the problems bearable in marriage is whenever you're handling the problems together as friends instead of enemies. I've seen marriages where enemies are married to one another. That's when opposites attract to the extreme, right? <laughs> Be friends. One of my other best friends growing up <clears throat> was my, my brother Gene. I just talked about him playing card games or Stratego. We used to do a lot together. I, I miss him a lot, miss getting to do life together. He lives across the States. I remember he was dating this gal. And it was just taking his life down a horrid path. I think he saw it too, but he was unwilling to admit it. He was constantly getting into trouble with her. My parents were having to discipline him like crazy. My brother worked for the pizza factory, and he often got home late. <clears throat> I had school in the morning. It was This was happening well before this picture up here. But, and um, he, it was, this is the time whenever he was graduated, but he was staying home for a while. I was still going to high school. And I'm a writer, and I was in this awkward position where I'm three years his younger, but I just felt compelled, as nosy little brothers do feel compelled to at some times, to give him my own two cents on his life decisions. And so I wrote him this long letter. I don't remember. I can write letters pretty fast, so it was probably six to ten pages, 12-size font. I don't remember. And it was all about the bad decisions he was making. And then, like a trooper, I left it on his pillow before he got home from work one night, and I went to bed feeling rather accomplished. Now, you can imagine, he just loved that letter, right? He ate it up. No, he didn't. <laughs> he wouldn't talk to me for a while. He was too livid. He said a few things, but then he probably told me he didn't want to say any more before he calmed down. But then he did calm down. We eventually got over it. I probably saying, you know, it wasn't really my place. He probably said something along the lines of, I know you did it because you care about me, but let me make my own decisions. And we went back to hanging out. Part of this was because we are a tight family just because, but also because he and I are friends. We didn't want a stupid, 
petty decision or disagreement or whatever to ruin our entire history and future of friendship. The friendship was worth more than the battle. And he and I have had a few battles. But it never became a wedge. When the wedges were threatening, we managed to repent and get over it. The friendship was just too much. The bride sees Solomon as her love and her friend. Well, the chorus, the young woman certainly got their answer. Who is he? Why is he better? I'll tell you why. I'll sing you a little ditty. She did. She gave that song. And then we see the chorus is convinced they will help her find him. She says, where has your love gone, most beautiful of women? Which way has he turned? We will seek him with you. And as I mentioned from time to time, the chorus is just a literary device to keep the story moving. And the whole book of Song of Songs, though in my mind is likely a fictional story, it's probably inspired by Solomon's first love. So it is to be taken then that the chorus is just pushing along the narrative because this is kind of sneaky. All along it sounds like the bride has known where her husband is. She answers him, them. My love has gone down to his garden, to beds of spice, to feed in the gardens and gather lilies. I am my love's, my love is mine, he feeds among the lilies. This feeding in the garden, feeding among the lilies, he's feeding sheep in those areas. And throughout the book, I have taken the interpretation that this means he's busy doing work. He's the shepherd of Israel. He's the king of Israel. And she makes this commitment statement again, that in light of that, in light of his being so busy, I am my love's and my love is mine. She mentioned this back in chapter 2. She says this sort of statement actually three times throughout the book, and this is the second one. Back in chapter 2, verse 16, she says, My love is mine and I am his. He feeds among the lilies. So the second part of that phrase is the same. And again, I believe the idea is that in light of his duties, in light of his being so busy as the shepherd of Israel, feeding the sheep, among the proverbial lilies, she's committed, my love is mine and I am his. And the context in this statement is still the same. They just had this lover's tiff. The chorus has reoriented her focus. She sings a poem of saying how amazing he is. But then she says, backwards from the first time she said it, I am my love's and my love is mine. He feeds among the lilies. Now, Here's the significance, I think. She's putting herself first, and she's working on the problem from her angle, from her side. She's saying, he's going to go to work. He is the king. I get that. I have to live with that, and I am my loves. She's yielding, surrendering, submitting to him, to all of him, to everything that means. I'm a pastor, and I've talked to enough pastors with their own congregations well enough to know what are most counseling sessions or even, or even one-on-one discussions with quarreling couples all about? Especially if it's just one-on-one. Hey, I know I got my junk, but they... <laughs> when it comes to your relationship, if your relationship has problems, I think it's more, and more than relevant to hear Jesus say, why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that splinter out of your eye and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite, first 
take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Now, I'm going to first person the rest of this because I don't like pointing fingers. I think she has problems. Let's just be honest. I have problems. I have problems. If the relationship is suffering, it is in part due to me, period. It's more, it's more than, well, I know I'm not innocent. It's more than that. <laughs> Don't minimize. I'm not innocent. I got it. Don't share the blame or guilt. I'm only this way because she... Don't chalk it up to bad genes. I got this problem because my parents were... Don't get defensive. The pastor doesn't know me. He doesn't know the environment I deal with day in and day out. Own it. <laughs> I have problems. And what's causing the marital problems are sins that I can repent of, are issues that I need to deal with, are due to my own guilt, my own problems. We're not talking about her. We're talking about me. And I'm just going to lay it out further for you if it's not clicking in your mind. If each spouse were to humble themselves, if each spouse were to stop being so focused on the mess of their husband or their wife and instead of on their own mess, it will hopefully bring two humble, repentant sinners to the equation, which in my mind is better than two self-righteous, finger-pointing jerks. Just a thought, if you can follow my logic. See, if I can stop looking at, at my problems in comparison to their problems... But just say, wow, I got some serious problems. How are they even still in this relationship with me? It should make us, A, seek to better ourselves, and B, appreciate our long-suffering spouse more. It sounds simple. I know it's not always simple, but it should be a start by the grace of God. It should be a pursuit. See, the logic here should not be, well, Kevin... Your theory of humbling myself, admitting I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and extending the same grace, long-suffering, and unconditional forgiveness to my spouse that God gives me has some serious logical flaws in it. It doesn't. It's biblical. It's what God demands. The only problem occurs is when one spouse or the other doesn't practice this. And if you're here today and you have marital problems... I urge you to practice this. I beg you to practice this. Do not say, my husband needs to or my wife needs to. I urge you yourself to practice this. And let me just say that even while we are faithless, Jesus is still faithful. And if you think you're the faithful one and they're the faithless one, do what Jesus does. Do what Jesus does. See, the bride turned her husband down, and then she got turned down. She didn't chase him down and say, what was that all about, you jerk? <laughs> no, she handled her own mess. And the chorus helped her to realign her thinking. Okay, we got some problems. I did turn him down. He turned me down. Why do I like him? She thought through why she liked him, and she made, and she made it her willing to yield to him. I am my love's. And he is mine. Well, the last time Solomon, the husband, was in the story, he had just been denied and rejected by his wife. 
He went away denying her. The bride, as I just said, reoriented her thinking. She does like him, desires him, is committed to him. She is his and he is hers. Even though he's busy with shepherding Israel, what's he going to say now? Is he going to lord over her? Is he going to say, oh, you like me, huh? Funny way of showing it. No, rather, here's what he says. And these are some great compliments, men. Just put them away for a rainy day. You are as beautiful as Terza, my darling. Lovely as Jerusalem. Awe-inspiring as an army with banners. There you go. Valentine's Day is coming up, guys. Anyways, Solomon is king of Israel. Jerusalem is the capital. Terza is likely in Solomon's time an important city in the north and in fact would be the capital city of northern Israel when the kingdom splits. But you're like, I thought that was Samaria. You're right, it is after Terza. And so eventually, or um, capital cities are, are probably the most well-kept. They're the most important and inviting and especially in the day of monarchs probably full of extravagance and opulence, uh, cities. And he could be saying also, he says, the things that you think keep me away from you, they pale in comparison to you. You're a lot more beautiful than these cities. And then in the second part, the CSB uses awe-inspiring as an army with banners. The actual word in Hebrew is more literally dreadful, terrible or frightful and i get it the csb in in many translations want to choose a word that doesn't have those negative overtones but i think what's lost is the power of love here that the bride has over the groom she is like a victorious army invading and conquering and overrunning his heart he's helpless when it comes to her he can't be mad at her he can't lord it over her he then says Turn your eyes away from me, for they captivate or they overwhelm, they overpower me. See, now some men would say, oh man, she's got you wrapped around her little finger. And a real man would say, he's a one-woman man. And you're like, but this is Solomon. Come on, Kevin. We'll talk about that in a minute. (laughs) But this is how it should be. He's doing the manly thing. He's throwing the white flag. He's surrendering to the army. He's not fighting back. And he would go on to give her compliments. In fact, the rest of verses 5, 6, and 7 are almost verbatim the same from chapter 4, which I take to be the wedding night when they were in bed. And so the literary cue is this. His love for her burns just as much, if not more, as the things I just mentioned about being an overpowering army than their wedding night. The heat is just as hot And even though they've had problems, he cannot help but just love her, but to be enthralled with her. Then verses 8 and 9 bring some interesting comments, and it would kind of kill the romance if these love songs are being sung today. Solomon says, There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and young women without number, but my dove, my virtuous one, is unique. She is the favorite of her mother, perfect to the one who gave her birth. Women see her and declare her fortunate. Queens and concubines also, and they sing her praises. Knowing Solomon, we kind of scoff, don't we? 1 Kings 11 tells us that Solomon had a huge harem. Lots of wives, queens, and concubines, they eventually all led him astray from God. So this is what it sounds like to us as we read Song of Songs. It's like, you know I have access to lots and lots of hot women, but you're the best, honey. 
Like, you, thanks. <laughs> Some would defend that this is essentially the meaning, and it may have not really hurt or offset the bride as it would today because harems and multiple wives were the norm and expected back then. I don't know if I buy that. In our first sermon in the series, I made mention that many believe if we could just generally date the books that Solomon wrote in the Bible, it might be this way. First, it may have been Song of Solomon as he was a young king. He was not turned away by many women. Indeed, not having many women, this could be Solomon's first wife or love interest. Then perhaps throughout his life, Solomon is collecting Proverbs to put in the book of the same title. And then lastly, as Solomon surveys his life and he realizes what kind of a fool he's been, he's wrote Ecclesiastes. Also, secondly, it's known that harems were passed from king to king. So Solomon would acquire his dad, David's harem, by a virtue of ascending to the kingdom. Now, here's what might these verses might sound like today. He might be saying, there are plenty of women plastered on Hollywood magazines. There's household names. There's plenty of women that the world sees as the greatest. But to me, you're everything. You're in your own category above the rest they don't even touch you that's who you are to me that's kind of maybe what solomon is saying and then the godlike language comes back from solomon to the bride he said that all the women just mentioned sing her praises and apparently this is what they say who is this who shines like the dawn as beautiful as the moon bright as the sun awe-inspiring as an army with banners astronomical imagery universe and cosmos type imagery she shines like the dawn she's beautiful like the moon she's as bright as the sun she's exalted high above everything in fact the term for moon is used only three times in the old testament i'll let you guess on where one time is here okay and then twice in isaiah and when Isaiah uses it, he's talking about God's rule over Jerusalem, and then he's also talking about God's future work of redemption. So the man is placing the woman up there high too, just as like he did her, or she did her. There we go. That could be taken very wrong in this day and age. Ephesians 5, verse 25, husbands, Paul would say to husbands in Ephesians 5, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? And gave himself up for her. For her. He came to earth. He had authority to lay down his life and take it up again. He showed the white flag. The peoples of the earth overran him. They did what they wanted to to him. But he did this for his bride. To make her holy cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. The last line in Song of Songs with the women sing the same line of Solomon, that the bride is for Solomon, awe-inspiring, frightful, dreadful, terrible, as an army with banners. Is your spouse like that for you? Even after fights, even after conflicts, have you facilitated, channeled, yielded 
your love for them so that at the end of the day it's hopeless and it's helpless. You're stuck with them because life without them is inconceivable. They're an army victorious over your heart. If not, I want to challenge you to love with a white flag. You know the white flag, the symbol of surrender. And here is what I fear. Some of you have the armies out and it's stratego time. It's engaging in battles. And like enemies, all you're trying to do is capture each other's flag. When both of you should exchange those flags for some white ones and knock down your armies and surrender because it's not a battle. It doesn't have to be a battle because if you do continue to battle, there will be no winners, only losers. This is a hard call. This is a hard thing. But it's not only what's suggested, it's really what's demanded. Let's pray. Father, many of us love donning the general cap, the army cap. We like strategizing. We have the perfect plans of attack. We might even scoff and think, I don't attack, but then we're on defense and it's still battle time. Father, what you showed, and you didn't even have to, was the white flag when you came to earth. Father, you had every possible resource at your hand to obliterate those who would even touch you the wrong way. Nevertheless, you gave yourself to such great torture, but you did it for us. Father, would we have the, not the willpower, but the yieldedness and the surrender to say, I'm in this for life. I'm in this for her. I'm in this for him. I want to be their friend as we handle our problems, not their enemy. I want to be yielded and surrendered because life without them is inconceivable. Sometimes it might even be illogical to us, but was it illogical to you to just let many people crucify you? Father, you give us a high calling. Perhaps the area of our greatest purifying and sanctifying work takes place for those of us who marry. Father, for those of us who may not be married, and if we do intend to find a spouse one day, would we know what the cost is? And would we be willing to enter a marriage with that cost? For those of us who are single, would we be this gracious with friends? Would we be this gracious with family members and neighbors? Because this is how you call, call us to love each and every person that we know. Father, we thank you for the example you give us in Jesus, but we also thank you that you don't just leave us on our own to accomplish it. But rather you've given us the Holy Spirit and you give us continued grace and forgiveness whenever we do fail, because we do fail often. And Father, even though our spouses fail often, would we give them the same grace that you give us? Freely you've given to us, may we freely give to them. We love you, we thank you, and we ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.